Uh, well, good morning to you. My name's Kyle. I serve as lead pastor here. I want to welcome you. If you have your Bible, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. As you're doing that, I just want to offer a word of encouragement to uh, the women in here, especially you mothers. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, God, uh, in His Word here, through Paul, is, is writing to Timothy, and he just says this. I mean, he just goes into that's guarding the good deposit that was entrusted to you. And this is what he says. Paul's writing, he says, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. He says, I am reminded of your sincere faith. Now listen to this, mamas. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into, the fl into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. I love that thought there of how integral the grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice were in his faith. Just a few chapters later, Paul's finishing up and this is probably the last letter paul ever wrote um, he says this in second timothy 3 14 he says but as for you continue in what you have learned and firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in christ jesus so mamas grandmamas i want to encourage you that your work means a lot to your child, but specifically your work done in the name of Christ, your work in pointing your child to the gospel through the way that you live, through the way that you interact with your child, your grandchild, will matter, could matter, will matter for their eternity. And so I want to encourage you in that. And here's the other thing. If you're in here today, and, and today's tough, whether you're a mama who's lost a mama, um, whether you are a a desiring mother who has yet, for whatever reason, not been granted children, uh, I want to encourage you too to just continue to seek the face of Christ and to know that no matter what, whether you have physical children or not, you've been placed into the body of Christ to help bear spiritual children. And so Paul writes to his son in the faith, Timothy. He has another letter to his son in the faith, Titus. And what we have is the body of Christ. And in Titus, we see specifically that older women are to train younger women and that younger women are to learn from older women just as a child would learn from her mother and as a mother would train her child. So if on Mother's Day you hate or despise or it's very tough for you, I want to encourage you that, that God has not left you without a purpose and a calling in the body of Christ. Amen? Man, I appreciate so much Jasper's prayer for you all earlier, and I echo those same, those same thoughts of gratitude. Praise God for you. Um, amen. All right, so 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to continue in this big picture series, and we're, we're down to the final three sermons here in the, in the big picture. And So looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, what we have is uh, a picture into the church. And the Big Picture series has been about God's people enjoying God's presence within God's place for God's purpose. Today's topic is, what is 
the church. What is the church? Let me just read to you these first two verses here. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, God called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're asking and answering the question today, what is the church? Here's how I would answer that. So if you're taking notes, you can write this down. The church is the historic global body of Christ executing Christ's mission locally by God's grace. The church is the historic global body of Christ executing Christ's mission locally by God's grace. Let me pray for His help this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. Father, we thank You that You've spoken to us through Your Word and that now we get to hear that. Father, would You give us ears to hear, eyes to see, uh, your Word for what it is, the inspired Word of God. Father, help us to learn from it. Would You equip us for every good work through Your Word today? And Father, I pray that You would take my finite words, my lacking words, Father, and do something that only You can do by the Spirit of God alive in Your people today. We love You. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. So, what is the church. Well, for we Southerners, right, we who are deep fried in Southern culture, uh, the church is most considered the thing that you do on Sunday, right? It's that event that takes place on Sunday. We're going to church, right? It's Sunday. It's Sunday fun day. It's church day. It's whatever language, verbiage you use in your house. It's the day that you would say, we're going to church. And so going to church used to be such a big deal that, that it wasn't that long ago. I can remember having just introductory conversations with people uh, as you're meeting them, whether it's in your job or um, in, in a restaurant or something, you would say something to the effect of, well, what's your name? Where, where do you work? Are you married? you have children? Where do you go to church? That was typically in introductory conversations. There are some out there who will pick a church that are based on their perceived societal benefit, right? Like if I go to this place over here, then people might think this thing about me, either positive or negative, right? And so they're going to choose a church based on that. Others will claim a church as their church. This is, that's my church over there, when in reality, their attendance is only seen on Christmas or Easter and maybe a couple of times in between. Where do you go to church if you ask such a person? They would say, well, I go to such and such. We used to do this. I worked retail for a little while, and, and me and my boss, we were interested in people's salvation and their, whether or not they knew the Lord or not. And so we would begin a conversation a lot of times with, hey, where do you go to church at? And they would often tell you. And so we learned that uh, if you would ask a follow-up question like, oh, man, that's wonderful. Who's the pastor there? Uh, <laughs> well, I haven't been in a while. Okay. And then that leads into a different kind of conversation. But going to church has been on steep decline in the USA in the last two decades. In a Gallup poll that was released this year, only 47%, 47% of Americans regularly attend a house of worship. Now that's a, a church, a synagogue, a mosque, all right? This, this is any religion, house of worship. 
But that would mean that the percentage of Americans attending Christian churches would be less than 47%. So that 47%, though, of people who would attend a house of worship was 70% in the year 2000. So there are more and more people claiming no religious preference these days. With the heat being turned up on anyone who has a commitment to an absolute truth like we do as Christians, the heat's really been turned up on them in recent years. And so I don't think it's too baffling that there's been a separation of of the wheat and the tares, right? Would you like to keep your job? Would you like to receive a promotion? Would you like uh, like to not be called a bigot? Well, then just claim no religious preference and mind your business, right? Go with the ebb and the flow of wherever the stormy waters of the world might take you. Now, it's tempting to scoff at people with no backbone. It's tempting to laugh at them and to scorn them those whose only conviction is to maintain no convictions. It's easy to cancel anyone with convictions. But shouldn't we ask some questions first, like why is it so easy for someone to have no convictions all of a sudden? Especially someone who was, quote-unquote, raised in church. Now, I've heard it said and likely have said things similar myself. What this world needs is more Jesus. We need more people in church. And I know the intentions are good. However, I think those kind of statements, the the idea that simply going to church is going to fix things, reveal kind of the issue at hand. They reveal why the percentage is so drastically decreasing. Christians, for a few decades now, have failed to understand what the church is what its mission is, what it means about a person. And so they've discipled their children. They've discipled their grandchildren, not like Lois and Eunice did, but in a different way, to believe that Christianity is a call to go to church rather than a call to come and die. Brothers and sisters, Christ calls us to come and die. If any of you, Christ says, wants to be my follower, you must deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. And so it's no wonder then that if you ask someone, what is the church? They may answer you in all kinds of ways. They might say something like, it's where Christians worship their God. It's the place where my parents took me every Sunday. My grandmother ushered me into church each week. I would like to submit to you a better, albeit imperfect, definition. The church is the historic global body of Christ executing Christ's mission locally by God's grace. So, let me explain to you what that very loaded statement means. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, let me read it to you again. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all of those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. I'd like for you to take some special notice of some expressions that Paul is using here. There's three expressions used. Paul says, first, church of God. To the church of God. And then he defines that church of God as those who are sanctified in Christ. And then he further defines the sanctification, what that means by saying those who are called to be saints. 
You see, Paul is defining the church in very specific terms. There are no questions here about what the church at Corinth, the church of God at Corinth, is. It is the church of God, consisting of those who are sanctified in Christ, called to be saints. So, let's talk about the first one. First, the church belongs to God. It is of God, the church of God, meaning God is the author. He's the founder of the church. The church is His. It is His creation. He gives it direction then. He gives it life then. He governs her every move. And so the people who belong to the church belong first and foremost to God. They are His, and He is theirs. Therefore, their full and complete allegiance is to who? God and God alone. That is where our allegiance as Christians must rest. You see, a man, because of this, a man cannot come in and claim God's people as his own. There cannot be a man who rises up and claims to be some sort of a prophet with a New Testament or a new word from God who gets to claim God's people as his. This is not happening. He cannot give the church directions. He cannot give the church commands. If such a man arises, whether the man seems to be religious or whether he's a secular ruler, the church is obligated only to God and to God's Word alone. In Acts chapter 5, we see this playing out. The apostles are told to quit preaching Christ. They're in the middle of Jerusalem. They're preaching Christ. They're coming under fire from the local rulers. And they're told, you stop preaching Christ and we'll let you go. To which they respond, you may think it's right to obey, to obey man rather than God, but we must obey God rather than men. The apostles are essentially saying to these government authorities, we do not care what authority you have. Our authority comes, uh, our God has all authority. He is supreme in His authority. Yours is limited, but we follow God. You see, the Scriptures in the New Testament put a limitation on earthly authorities. There are good authorities, but they're not supreme authorities, whether they be the church and its authority, the home and its authority, or the government and its authority. Because if any human authority tells us to do something that violates God's Word, we must say no. This is the case for children whose parents might tell them they are not going to pray and read the Scriptures. Or for a wife whose husband is abusive and says, you are not going to church. Secondly, the church belongs to God. It's sanctified, it says here. The church is sanctified in Christ. Now the church is the people of God, and these people of God have been brought near through Jesus Christ. They were once far away from God, but now they've been brought near to God through Christ. Before Christ, as we saw in Ephesians 2 last week, we were separated. We were alienated from God because of our sin. But in Christ, we are bought and sanctified by the blood. We who were once unrighteous received the righteousness of Christ by God's grace and mercy. Ephesians 2, 13 Reads this, it says, But now in Christ Jesus, you, have want, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That means where Jews and Gentiles were once separated, they're now brought near together. They're the same by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinance. In ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. It says this of Christ. It says, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. See, the church has been sanctified in Christ. It's been brought near in Christ. In Christ, we have a brand new identity. And at the root of that statement, what we're saying is, is that we were once children of wrath, Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. But now we are children of God and co-heirs with Christ, which is what we see in Ephesians chapter 1, all because of the love, and God, the love of God and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, which we see throughout Scripture, but in Ephesians chapter 2. And so lastly, what we see is that the church belongs to God, is sanctified in Christ Jesus, and therefore it consists of all of those who God has called to be saints. Those that God has called to be saints. Now the New Testament word for church is this Greek word ekklesia. Ekklesia. Now this means those called out. And what are they called out of and into? We're called out of the world and into Christ, into God, right? And so the church consists of every person, whether it's past, present, future people, everyone who God has called out of the world away from their sin and into His marvelous grace through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the church is not a building. It's not an activity. The church is the people of God. The church is you. The church is me. They're known by their lives. These people ought to be, anyway, known by their lives, the lives that they live for God, the lives that they live before God's face, understanding that they're His, He is theirs. Listen to Peter's description of the church. The Apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, he says, But you, talking about the church, he was comparing them to the people of the world, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So to see what makes the people of God, God makes the people of God. And He does so through Christ Jesus. And all of those who have come near to God through Christ Jesus are those who would be called out of the world out of darkness and into the marvelous light of Christ. The church is God's holy nation. It consists of men and women, boys and girls, from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation because God has called them to Himself and He is sanctifying them in Jesus Christ. 
You see, we were made alive in Christ by the Spirit of God that is alive in us. And so we become then the temple of God. Ephesians 2.22, In Him, talking about in Christ, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Because of the Spirit alive in us, God now dwells in us. We are His temple. We belong to God. God belongs to us because God has called us to be His people. God by His Spirit dwells with us and in us. And the beautiful thing about this is, is this is a global thing. This is an eternal thing. This is a historic, behind us, in our past thing. When we read about the brothers and sisters in Acts, those are your brothers and sisters in Christ. You will reside in heaven with them one day. One of the most amazing, one of the sweetest memories, I guess, that I have of, of this trip I went on with Disciple of the Nations to Brazil a, few years, a couple of years ago. It wasn't, you know, the teacher in me got real giddy about the 50 hours of training we were going to be doing. I'm like, yes, yes, yeah, this is going to be a blast. And so we trained missionaries for 50 hours at least. But that wasn't the most amazing thing, I don't think, though it was incredibly sweet. The sweetest memory I had was from our last night there. We were told that we would join a church service in the field. Now, the area of Brazil that we were in was extremely rural, all right? There, there wasn't, you weren't, you weren't going to drive cars and, and all of that to a, a large church building. There were church buildings in the city, but outside the city, those people were left to themselves. Left to themselves. And there weren't ways for them to easily get in and out. And so there were church services, churches, pastors of churches, missionaries who had planted churches in all these different areas, and we got to go join one. This transportation was limited because poverty's high, so we drove for 45 minutes on what were essentially deer camp logging roads. We're in this tiny four-door sedan with five grown men, and we're hitting mud holes, and we're sliding around, and we're following a couple of kids on uh, dirt bikes. You know, a typical Friday night in Arkansas. <laughs> Except that out of nowhere, there's a light, and there's a crowd. And as we pull up into this place, there's at least 75 men, women, and children gathered. Now, they were gathered around a small storage building, which I later learned housed the little plastic chairs and the speaker that were outside. There was a light on the building, and June bugs were wrecking us. It's 9 p.m. It's dark because if you meet in the day, you'll burn. And there's one, this one floodlight, and then all there's a trillion stars out. And you couldn't help but look up into the heavens and think about God's promise to, uh, to Abraham that I'll make a people from you that numbers greater than the stars. And as I'm there with brothers and sisters whom I haven't yet met, I've walked around shaking hands, giving kids high fives, and they're speaking a language I can't understand. And I'm speaking one they can't understand. But what we did understand was we had the gospel in common. There were genuine hugs and tears and excitement and joy, and we were praising the same Jesus. They invited Dustin 
from Disciple Nations to, to, to preach that night. They had gathered and they were waiting on us to show up. They were ex as excited to see us as we were to see them. And after they sang some songs, which teenagers led, Dustin preached a message. We drank some coffee, because that's the, the native drink. <laughs> we ate some beans and rice, and we fellowshiped for at least an hour after the service. People left by way of dirt bikes. I mean, there's four people crammed on top of a dirt bike. Fifteen people crammed into cars. I mean, it was just nuts. But on display that night was the love of Christ, the fellowship of the saints, the existence of a global body of Christ. And it's incredible to see what God is doing through the church, not only throughout the ages as we read about it, but throughout the world as we experience in those kinds of moments. There is always a remnant of God's people faithfully serving Him in all the earth. Amen? You see, the church is the historic, global body of Christ. But that's not all the church is. The church doesn't exist only in scattered, historic, global gatherings. It doesn't exist just in that kind of sense. The church is scattered throughout the earth and exists locally. When Paul writes this letter, what does he say? To the church of God in Corinth. In Corinth. The church is the historic global body of Christ, yes, but it executes the mission of Christ locally by God's grace. The church has a local existence. The church is rooted in specific places because people exist in specific locations. So churches are to be local expressions of the historic global body of Christ. People are confined to a place and time. Why? Because we are finite. But our God is infinite. And so place matters to God because people matter to God. He created us finite. He created us with limits. But He has no limits, and so He meets us where we are. In His infiniteness, He calls and dwells with His people in their finite places and time. So the church becomes an outpost of the body of Christ. The little C church, which is what we're gathered in today, is a part of an outpost of the big C church, the universal, global, eternal work of God in all the earth. See, God has always done this, things this way. This is the way God has done from the beginning of time. This is the way God came to His people. This is the way God dwells with His people. This is the mission that God gives His people. It starts with the creation mandate, with the first man and woman. They are told to what? To be fruitful and multiply, to subdue the earth, to exercise dominion. What that meant was they were to cultivate the Garden of Eden atmosphere, the Garden of Eden dwelling with God. They were to cultivate that in all the earth. It was to go out from the Garden of Eden, extend to the ends of the earth. But sin. And so what does God do in the Old Testament? He calls Israel, right? The nation of Israel. And the call for them was very similar. They were to spread the knowledge of God throughout the earth. They were to make known God throughout the earth to the other nations. That was their purpose. But sin. 
failed over and again. But God, throughout their failings, was saving a remnant. And then in the New Testament, after Christ rises from the grave, He issues a commission to His disciples. He tells them, Go therefore into all the earth, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, or to obey all that I have commanded you. And in Acts, we see that Jesus told them a bit more specifically, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, the existence of local churches isn't so that good stays in one place. It's not so that grace stays in one place. The existence of local churches is so that grace might affect a people and they become the people of God and then go out from that place into their lives, affecting others with that same saving grace. And so good doesn't stay, good launches. Amen? Good launches from the body of Christ into the world. It starts with men and women who take the knowledge of God, which they've received by God's grace, into every area that God has given them. So there ought to be, and and will be at some point, teachings on each one of these. But let's just think about it as workers for a moment. How many of you in here have a, a job? Hold your hand up. Yeah, you got some kind of employment. All right. Some of you not raising your hand that I know are employed, so I don't know you're asleep. Somebody poke their neighbor, right? Colossians 3.23 says that whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do everything unto the glory of God. Paul encourages bond servants in Titus chapter 2, which was a bit like being employed, but more on the servant side. But he encourages them to adorn the gospel in their behavior toward their boss, essentially. What about his friends? Right? It's, it's just being a friend, a neighbor to someone. There's all sorts of scriptures about being a good neighbor. Treat others how you would like to be treated. Love your neighbor as yourself. One of my favorites is, is Proverbs specifically the thought of iron sharpening iron, and how iron clanging together can be violent and difficult, but it makes one sharp. And so the work of friends is not to just be acquaintances who enjoy hobbies together. The work of friends, Christian friendship, is the work of helping one another follow Jesus Christ, clanging together so that one might become more sharp. Husbands. Husbands are like, no, 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 it's Mother's Day. (laughs) Don't worry, I'm not going to beat on you. In Ephesians chapter 5, we're told that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Paul says that the mystery of marriage is tied to the way Christ loves his bride. It's been revealed to us that the reason God created marriage in the garden was so that a husband and a wife might walk with the gospel in hand as they love one another. As they commit themselves to one another, as they live faithfully together. Now that, again, fleshes itself out in a million different ways. Marriage is difficult. And it's amazing. 
It's a joy. And so husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church in a self-giving, sacrificial manner that they might be adorned with the gospel. Fathers, Deuteronomy 6, Ephesians 6, both give commands. Deuteronomy 6 talks about how we are to train our children to know the Ten Commandments, to understand the law of God, to understand who God is and how to worship Him rightly, that that falls on parents to train their children. And so Deuteronomy 6 says you are to talk about these things as you walk along, as you rise out of bed, as you walk along the way, as you sit down and you eat in your homes. What's Moses saying in Deuteronomy 6? You talk about the things of God all the time. Wherever you are, as fathers, as mothers, we're looking for an opportunity to talk about the Lord. Ephesians 6 tells fathers not to provoke their children to wrath. Now, how do we do that? By being too hard? By not balancing discipline or punishment is really the word for it, with grace, which would then make it discipline? We can cut our children with our words. We can be really just awful to them and so provoke them to wrath. But he says, Paul writes there, raise your children with the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Right? Raise them to understand the Lord. Discipline your children in right ways. If you don't understand discipline and you think, man, I'm really missing the mark on this, let's talk about it. There's good and right ways to discipline a child, and there's really, really awful ways to discipline your children. But the big part is instruction. Does your discipline come with instruction? We're to raise our kids with instruction. So, Dad, why can't I touch that stove? Because I told you not to. Okay. Well, what's going to happen later in life? Curiosity is going to get the cat, right? Dad, why can't I touch that stove? Well, son, if you do, it's going to hurt you. It's going to burn you. It could be really bad. Here, you want to see some pictures of some nasty burns, right? <laughs> That's what dads do. Let me show you the gross part of this. But, but discipline comes with instruction. Now, Dad, why do I have to listen to your command to do that? Well, because God has said that you need to obey your parents so long as they're not telling you to do something that goes against His Word. Is it wrong for me to tell you not to touch a hot stove? No. Well, then I'm not disobeying God, and so therefore you would be disobeying God if you disobey me. Right? This is how we tie discipline to instruction, and we raise our kids with wisdom and instruction of the Lord, or wisdom and discipline of the Lord. Dads, husbands, we lead in this. We must lead in this. Wives, Scripture says to submit yourself to your husband as the church submits herself to Christ. Now that I get, this is far easier to do when a husband is loving you the way Christ loved the church. A wife will happily submit herself to such leadership, such guidance, such tender care. Right? And she should, because this is what God has commanded. Now, if a husband is abusive, if a husband is running over you, if he is topping you, right? If he's in that way, an authoritarian in the home, then to submit yourself looks far different at times. All right, sometimes the best thing you can do for an abuser is to not let them go on abusing. It's 
remove yourself from a situation. And so that would be encouraged. It would be right. But if we've got a husband who's an unbeliever, he's just not following the Lord, he's not abusive, he's, he's good in many ways, he's not interested in the things of God, well, 1 Peter 3 commands a wife to submit herself to her husband so far as it doesn't go against God's Word. And that by her happy submission, her joyous submission, she might win his heart to the Lord. Husbands, the same is true for us if we have a wife who is unbelieving. We too must love her the way Christ loved the church. Now, what's the deal about the church in Christ? The church is rebellious. The church is adulterous. The church does not submit herself to Christ. Right? This has been true since, since the beginning. Since Adam and Eve turned from God. And so we too turn from God. Many times we go our own way. We have our own desires, our own things, right? And so we're not submitting ourselves to the Lord. But we can happily, happily love our wives. And in leading them well, God, in, God uses that to turn the heart of his wife, of the man's wife. He does. You have many scriptures to believe that that could happen. And so to work to that end. Amen? So wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Study Ephesians 5 together if all of that is just like, what in the world is he talking about? Read Ephesians 5. I've got a great book in my office I'll give you today if you want to read that. It's about this big. <laughs> you can read it in an afternoon and then reread it the next afternoon. It's very helpful in defining these things. Mothers, again, Deuteronomy 6, Ephesians 6, right? Teach your children to love the Lord. Lois and Eunice, right? Teach them to understand Scripture. Use a catechism to help with this if you need to. Teach your children Scripture. And so you work alongside your husband in cultivating the spiritual life of your home. Amen? Husband's helping this. Again, there are countless resources to help in this. You're not alone, and I'm happy to point you in the right direction. Just reach out to me. So, whether you're a worker or a friend, a mother, a father, a son, a daughter, like there, there are roles for all of us. God has given all of us Fields to tend as His people. And in those fields, the mission is to spread the knowledge of God throughout the earth. In your specific time and in your specific place. And so God does this through the church. He does it through men and women. He does it through boys and girls who have called upon the name of the Lord. And whose acts, which are seemingly very small bits of just kind of faithful living accomplish something that is universal, historic, and eternal, namely the salvation of God's people from beginning to end. And so, through the church, God builds His kingdom. The kingdom of heaven comes to earth. And it's a glimpse of what that kingdom will look like one day. Now look at verses 4 through 9, and then I'll, I'll finish with this. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him, in all speech 
and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. Verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Wonderful. We need not wonder then how we might be faithful men. How we might be faithful women or boys and girls who are faithful to God. Because He who made us new in Christ is He who will sustain us in Christ. He will give us the knowledge of Himself. He'll help us to understand who He is, His likeness, so that our speech might be adorned with Christ. He will grant us gifts for the ministry of Christ to all people throughout the earth. And He will present each one of those people that He has called. And all of those who call upon the name of the Lord, He'll present them spotless, guiltless on the day of Jesus Christ. Why? Because God is faithful. And so we can trust Him. We can know that all things are working together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Romans 8.28 And look at what we have to look forward to. And I'm not going to get too much into this because I'm going to preach this in two weeks. But Revelation 19.6-9 Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. It was granted her. How? By God to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. God is equipping the saints for this day, the day of Christ. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. So I urge you, grow in your faith in God. Knowing that God saves the church, He saves His people by grace through faith in Christ, and He equips the church with knowledge and gifts for growth in ministry. And He sustains the church to the end of all time. What then shall you fear? Nothing. Paul in Romans 8 writes, If God is for us, who can be against us? Are we not more than conquerors through Jesus Christ? So Christian, brother, sister, men, women, boys, and girls in here who love the Lord Jesus, I urge you, draw near to God through faith in Christ. Draw near to God through Christ. Grow in your faith so that you may be equipped with the knowledge of God and the gifts that God grants for ministry both in your home and in the church and in your life outside these doors, God grants you gifts for those things. 
also that you may live boldly for Christ in the face of impending persecution and hate and suffering, that you may be presented blameless, guiltless before Christ on the last day. But don't stop it growing in faith. Let your faith grow into love. We are called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That means all of those in a common faith. You see, God is building a kingdom of people in Christ. There's no way to be in this kingdom except through Christ. And He's doing it from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And of course, we celebrate this. We think that this is wonderful. But I want to pose one simple question here. What if, what if that nation consists of that person from a tribe you don't much care for? I want you in your mind to move beyond racism here. This is about more than someone's ethnicity, though I'll, I'll just throw this out for clarification. If you dislike someone because of the melanin count in their skin then you need to repent and turn to God. Amen? But what if, what if it's somebody from the, I'll, I'll use Jones, what if it's somebody from the Jones tribe? You know, those Joneses. The ones that are hard to keep up with. The ones that think they're better than everybody else. Right? Jones guy that cut you off in traffic the other day, you're just trying to drop your kids off at school. Jones woman that lies about you at work just to get ahead. Jones family with the kids that always have the newest clothes, the nicest toys, and so your kid looks at them with envy and makes you feel like a total slob because your kids don't have the same stuff. Those Joneses make life a real pain for you, don't they? Just by their existence. First John 4, 20-21 says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has not seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Okay, So here's the deal. It's easy to celebrate the idea of a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. But does it move you to compassion for lost people? Do you think about people from every tribe, tongue, and nation being that woman in the cubicle down the hall from you? Or that boss who's overwhelmed and angry and just treats people horribly? Or to the mom who maybe neglects her kids, but she's doing all she can as a single mother to raise them well and to provide for their needs? You understand what I mean? There are people who need compassion or we move to compassion we look upon a crowd as Christ did and be moved to tears because of the compassion we have as we see people without a shepherd do you look past the evil works of someone do you see a soul that is lost without Christ the truth that the church is the body of Christ the makeup of the church is all who call on Christ as Lord. That truth should move us to see that Christ can and will save anyone. Praise God, because that counts me. And He wants to use you to save them. 
Listen to Romans 10, 11 through 15. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Wonderful, right? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then Paul begins to ask some questions. He says, how then will they call on Him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? Oh man, those are great points. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So this idea of the church of God being historic, global, the body of Christ, executing Christ's mission locally, meaning He executes it through you, men and women, boys and girls who love the Lord in their place, in their time. Does that move you to compassion in such a way that you would now have feet that are adorned with the gospel message where you go, having compassion on those around you, sharing the love of Jesus with them? That we, we are a people who were far off. But God has brought us near to Himself in Christ. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for you. Father, we love you. God, I thank you for these people. I thank you for this word. God, would you move in our hearts today? Help us, Father, to have compassion on those who are far off that we might be used to bring them near to You. God, we thank You that we are the church of God in Magnolia, that we're a part of the church, that we exist as a local expression of the body of Christ, the global, eternal body of Christ. Would You help us to live for You, to see ourselves in this story that You're writing, that You're telling Help us not to be so distracted by the mundane things that we miss how those mundane things might be made majestic at your touch. God, help us to be men and women who love you in such a way that we're, we're faithful workers. We're compassionate friends. We're loving husbands and submissive wives. We're parents who take the wisdom and instruction and discipline of the Lord seriously in our home. We want to raise Christians, boys and girls who love Jesus with all their heart. Father, would you help us in those endeavors? Help us to see how the spaces in our lives might be used for your glory, the fame of your name in all the earth. Father, would you help people be drawn to the message of Christ? Would you open their hearts and ears that they might hear it and be saved? I pray that for anyone here today who doesn't know you, would you save their soul today? That they too might be a part of the church, joined in, working for you, living for you, having their lives made new, overcoming sin. Heavenly Father, we praise You for Jesus Christ. We praise You for a new identity in Him. We thank You for the Spirit that's alive in us, who's making us alive like Christ. It's in Him.
It's in God's name we pray. Amen.